Japan's known for Godzilla movies. So they had a new one come out called Shin Gojira, means new Godzilla. And the Simic team leader, Lieutenant Colonel Kawasaki, told me I should watch it because it would show me how Japanese military planned. And when I watched it, it was extremely obvious what she meant. Even as Tokyo was being destroyed, it took a while to get to a decision. You know, their decision-making process was, was very detailed and had to be absolutely sure. And, and that's no, I'm not finding fault in any way. I'm just stating, you know, what they told me and what I observed. Because once they do decide they're going to do something, it's very hard to make changes. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Wyatt Hughes, a major in the Army for Civil Affairs, and he was a Civil Affairs Planner for the U.S. Army Japan's Army Reserve Engagement Team, also called an ARET. Major Hughes, welcome to the 1CA Podcast. Hey, good morning. Where are you now? What are you doing? Uh, I think you're in ILE, is that right? Uh, that's correct. I'm currently assigned here at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, going through the CGSC curriculum. I'm thankfully halfway through and uh, should PCS around June of this year. Not really sure where I'm going yet, but I'm certainly enjoying the educational experience while I'm here. That's great. How, how long is the program? The program is 10 and a half months. Uh, it's changed a few times over the years, but currently they project that for the next few years it will remain anywhere from 10 to 11 months, depending on your report date. Uh, which also is tied to any preparatory courses you may have to do based on specific branch. Okay. Well, we may get to that if if that's okay with you. Ask any follow up questions toward the end of this, or maybe as a bonus. Uh, what sure. we wanted to focus on for this discussion was a paper that you had written regarding your experience in Japan, and it's entitled "Civil Affairs Interoperability: Japan Ground Self Defense Force Civil Military Cooperation Education." So you were a CA planner, as I mentioned, in the ARET that was in Japan, and wanted to focus your discussion here on your experience working with the Japanese Central Readiness Force, or the CRF. And before we get into that, try to set the stage for listeners. So that's a part of what's called the Japanese Self-Defense Force, which was created in 1954 after World War II. Um, the U.S. had been occupying Japan and essentially got rid of its the previous version of its military. And so it helped to reestablish a self-defense force for Japan that did not have offensive capabilities. In the, in the early years, I think it was mainly a police force helping to, uh, to maintain a law and order within Japanese borders, not really going outside of Japanese borders, and has evolved to a very powerful force today. Uh, and it's now considering adding some offensive capabilities. So could you talk about, if you know this, the, the history of the Central Readiness Force in Japan? Absolutely. So the Central Readiness Force was established in 2007. It was established as part of a directive that was a national policy directive, which included defense guidelines for Japan. The establishment specifically of special operations and an unconventional warfare force but primarily one that could provide defense of the homeland using special skills or be utilized in international peace cooperation activities. At the same time that the CRF was established, the International Peace Cooperation Activities Training Unit in Camp Komakado, Japan, was also established. So within the CRF, you've got 
the Special Forces Unit, which is in Okinawa. It works very closely with our own Special Forces for direct action and special operations in event that Japan itself is attacked, not for exportation of those skills or use overseas in any missions. However, from the International Peace Cooperation Activities Training Unit, what you see is a different focus. So looking at what for years was considered within CA as our core task, the two specific ones that are related to the IPCAT, or International Peace Cooperation Activities Training Unit, are populace and resources control, and also foreign humanitarian assistance. Since 2007, the CRF assumed the duties of deploying personnel, specifically personnel who are from the CRF, in support of various United Nations missions. Since 2007, there has been more than five instances where, where they've been deployed to places such as Rwanda or Sudan in support of the United Nations missions. But prior to the CRF even, the Japanese have taken part in numerous UN peacekeeping operations. So what you saw with the CRF was a transition from the Japan Ground Self-Defense Force, which is one of three branches of the Japan Self-Defense Force, a transition of the UN peacekeeping duties from across the Ground Self-Defense Force to a specific population that was trained more so to be culturally focused and regionally focused in support of HADR, or Humanitarian Assistance and Disaster Relief Operations. Unfortunately, the CRF was disbanded in March of 2018. A little bit of history behind what happened. While I was stationed in Japan at Camp Zama from 2015 June until 2017 June, the Central Readiness Force continued to focus its efforts where it had previously in the international peace cooperation area within the region. However, due to realignment within the Japan Ground Self-Defense Force and additional defense guidelines, the CRF itself was disbanded, although the capabilities remain. So CRF headquarters at Kamsama, Japan, was then switched to Tokyo itself, and then ultimately... The same capabilities exist, but were pushed back into the ground self-defense force in various units. Okay. So that's a little history there. Um, not due to a lack of importance, a lack of, well, not lack of, but rather a realignment of the management of those capabilities. The special forces unit in Okinawa was combined with a Western army or amphibious force that was within the Western Army in Kyushu. So this is just some of the basics, the dynamics as the leadership changes and ultimately as some of their guidelines change under their Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. All right. I mean, those changes always happen, uh, certainly when leadership swaps out. So the, the buildup of capabilities, which are no longer in CRF but elsewhere, for HADR, Humanitarian Assistance and Disaster Relief that you mentioned, why did the CRF become a regional go-to partner for HADR? Well, part of it has to do with the United Nations budget. So next to the United States, you know, we contribute 25% of the UN's budget annually. Japan is the next largest partner. They contribute about 11%. As such, and as part of that mandate, their focus is within their own region. They look at it as a preparation for instead of retroactive 
the preparation of the environment by building relationships with neighboring countries, you know, in support of humanitarian disasters. Japan is well known to be a place that has experienced every type of humanitarian disaster imaginable due to the fact that they have volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis. Uh, They've had a combination of events, March 11th of 2011, uh, which led to a complete change in how they looked at regional response. They're also, unfortunately, geographically situated in such a place that the plates beneath them could easily lead to a major disaster at any time, uh, which is one that they've prepared for and, and hopefully will never experience, but could destroy a large portion of what we know now as Japan in the event of a, a massive earthquake. What happened in 2011? Well, in 2011, the uh, Tohoku earthquake and tsunami it took place uh, virtually within minutes of each other. And then ultimately, as a result of the earthquake and tsunami, the Fukushima nuclear power plant was essentially, it led to a meltdown. Right. And Inundated with sudden, seawater and contaminated everything. Right. Absolutely. And as part of their national response and the combined response of United States forces that were also within the country, Japan continued to, to look at ways that they can respond internally to disasters in a similar way that we look at FEMA. Uh, in fact, within the CRF, there is a national welfare section. And, you know, that itself is tied to how they respond to disasters. You know, they became experts uh, by default uh, due to that and several other disasters over the years. And as, as such, each division of CRF was not only focused on defense of Japan, but how do you maintain uh, a response to a crisis internal to Japan? You know, right. it was never really focused on exporting these abilities or capabilities aside from humanitarian relief. And because they were so quick to respond to so many UN disasters within the region, uh, or essentially like the ring of fire, you know, as it's uh, often considered, then by default, their expert abilities have continued to be relied upon, you know, as a go-to partner uh, for United Nations. Yeah, that's a great one for Japan to have and to be able to export to its partners. So the CRF had stood up and is no longer existing, but the capabilities are still there. Does Japan have its own version of civil affairs forces or personnel assigned to do CIMIC-type missions? Absolutely. So within the original Central Readiness Force headquarters, they had a section, a CIMIC team, and their entire CIMIC capability was approximately 11 people. Uh, When I got there in June of 2015, by way of conversation with our foreign area officers, that were assigned to the Eastern Army and also to Central Readiness Force, I was able to engage in a couple of critical key leader discussions with personnel who managed the CIMIC team and also the engineer section that was within the Eastern Army. So to clear that up a little, Japan's ground self-defense force has five armies within the self-defense force, each one based on region. The Eastern Army is the army that is in the same region that Central Readiness Force headquarters was located. So not being overly familiar with their structure, aside from some research prior to arriving in Japan, I knew I needed to engage key personnel in both groups because of the support of the CIMIC to the engineer section, which was in the Eastern Army. Okay. After having a couple of these engagements, uh, it became very clear that 
personnel assigned to the SIMIC team received no training. And having just left SWIC or the Special Warfare Center in school, I thought this might be a great opportunity, you know, as we continue to work together to build capacity. That was also one of the missions that U.S. Army Japan was charged with, was building partner capacity with the Japan Ground Self-Defense Force. And their headquarters was approximately half a mile away from ours. Wow. Uh, both headquarters had both personnel uh, located working together on quite a few different things. So I saw this as an opportunity to continue to build that capacity. I engaged a CIMIC team leader, Lieutenant Colonel Kawasaki, who was a pharmacist by branch, and she had just been assigned there for a two-year rotation to lead the CIMIC team and essentially support any efforts for HADR within the region that required a CIMIC specialist. So civil military cooperation training is different depending on what countries you go to and depending on what they're allowed to do. Uh, CIMIC is quite different than civil affairs. However, specific to Japan, CIMIC is even more different than a lot of other CIMIC forces around the world. And what I mean by that is due to their constitution. So the Japan constitution, Article 9, prevents them from having an army, a navy, a fighting force, and essentially declaring war on anyone else. You know, this is all the way back to World War II. So if you can't have all the other skills that civil affairs has, that we teach at our schoolhouse, then how do I modify this to support what they can do? So those discussions led us to create a new curriculum together, which pulled from our populace and resources control and foreign humanitarian assistance and build them a course specific to that that would give them something within a pipeline to kind of understand how they would work with us in conjunction you know, throughout the region for FHA, or PRC, or what they refer to as HADR. Right. Uh, same thing our, our Army as a whole refers to it as, you know, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief efforts. Right. So what the USAID calls HADR. Absolutely. Uh, so that combination of key leader engagements, right place, right time, uh, because, you know, CRF had been relocated from Camp Osaka, Japan, to Camp Zama, Japan in 2013. So two years later, you know, I arrived there. I'm able to have this opportunity to engage their leadership. And from there, we began the planning process. Leadership within the CRF included Lieutenant General Kobayashi, who was assigned there uh, as the commander in 2016. And he approved of our idea to create a course. So based on that, I reached back to the Special Warfare Center and School and also to 322CA, uh, which is over in Hawaii, to see what kind of support I could get to bring some instructors and some subject matter experts and begin the process of planning a modified type of course uh, for the Japanese. Okay. Based okay. on what they were legally allowed to do, I put together a textbook. It was 367 pages worth of uh civil affairs information focused on PRNC, FHA, and also the other core tasks, but only an overview of what the U.S. can do uh, from that standpoint. Then I had it translated into Japanese. Uh, I attempted to do that, but not very successfully. Right. <laughs> so I had to work through professional translators um, to get it translated. And I reached back to SWIC to, to just get additional support 
I knew that we did not have an exportable CA course, which is something I had wanted to do anyway. So I felt this was an opportunity to do a, a hybrid version. And I knew that having worked previously as the OIC of the CA qualification course on the reserve side, and then working in one of the modules for the active side as well, that there was a wealth of knowledge there. And there were instructors that third battalion might be able to provide for a week to two weeks in Japan had I give them enough notice, you know? Right. So basically that's where we went from there. I did get approval from third battalion to support the course. Uh, it would not be a certification course. You know, this goes back to proponency. They understood that. I understood that the Japanese understood that. Right. So it, it became, Hey, here's an opportunity to get some training and how, we do FHA, PRC, and then how they do HADR and combine the two. And it resulted in a 40-hour course with uh, 20-something graduates. I don't or graduates, you know, 20 people that were able to attend all classes. That's great. Yeah, well, and it, it led to a lot of other discussion and opportunities where we were able to incorporate USAID and training iterations for Jayhawk qualification for the Japanese. Right. And it also opened the door with uh, their Lieutenant General Kobayashi, you know, the commander at the time, to look at expanding their CIMIC from more than a rotational, hey, you just need to go here, we need to fill this seat, to, wow, we really need to send people to training. And this training will enhance their abilities and grow our capability with the U.S. Mark your calendars for the 2019 Civil Affairs Roundtable to be held on Tuesday 2 April at the National Guard Armory Conference in Washington, D.C. This year's roundtable will conclude the seminal discussion of optimizing civil affairs started at last fall's symposium at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and in the 2018-19 Civil Affairs Issue Papers to be published before the roundtable. At the roundtable, the discussion shifts to a more granular identification of .mil PFP pathways to guide CA modernization and continuous investment in an innovative and adaptive force that is well-networked in planning and operational relationships and persistently engaged and aligned regionally to facilitate political military goals and objectives. In addition to the speakers and panel discussions, attending members and friends of the regiment will conclude by looking at how to advance civil affairs at a more ambitious multilateral scale over the next year's cycle. In order to maximize official travel for uniformed members of the regiment, the roundtable immediately precedes the PKSOI Training and Education Workshop, which will be held on 3 to 5 April at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania. For more information, including the agenda and registration, go to the Civil Affairs Association website, which is at civilaffairsassoc.org. Major Hughes, what would you say were some of the lessons that you had learned working with the Japanese CRF and trying to stand up this training program? Was it was it well received? You know, how did you overcome the language barrier? You talked about translators, but when it was actually delivered in person, how did that go? And uh, what was the process of working with SWIC and working with the Japanese to get it off the ground? Well, the process working with the Japanese is a little bit different and you know i would say a little bit more complicated simply because of language but culture is the bigger piece of that so the japanese ground self-defense force is in kind of a unique spot they have 
legislative support and ability to do what they're trying to do, but they're limited in certain areas. And certain personnel within the CRF were a little frustrated with that. Like they, they wanted to learn more. They were very thirsty for the knowledge. Uh, when we start talking about nation assistance and, you know, and, and these aren't subjects with the Japanese, but I'm just giving you an idea. Imagine talking about nation assistance and getting to the discussion of something like foreign internal defense. Right. You know, and, and having to suddenly, you know, change the conversation dialogue to, hey, let's talk about refugees again. You know, or I understand that you're interested in this, but your government does not allow you to do certain things. You know, even looking at their special force, uh, it's not the same as ours. It's not meant to be, you know, uh, even though there's a lot of coordination and there's a lot of support from each other down in Okinawa. It, it's never going to replicate exactly what we have because of their constitution and the fact that there's a lot of people that are a little scared that it'd be better not to develop those capabilities. And, and that, that fear comes from the Japanese side. Right. You know, we look at, and it's not universal. Uh, don't misunderstand me. It's more of a society perception. You know, in Japan, if you have a good example, helicopter flies overhead, let's say some blanks fall out and they land on a sidewalk somewhere. They're blanks, but it sends shockwaves through the community. Mm -hmm. You know, there's people with guns that fly overhead at night, you know, that type of thing. Right. So you're, you're fighting that perception. It's been over 60 years since they've not had an active, uh, an offensive force. And so generations of people in Japan, in Japan who have not been used to it. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of clear it up from the lens of what I think the Japanese um, accept is that although General MacArthur was very strong trying to help establish or reestablish a sense of order at the end of the war by ways of constitution, you know, curfews, uh, various, various changes, the Japanese academic community was also very fearful and did not want the military to have so much power ever again. You know, so there's a lot of push from the Japanese side. So when you look at like Prime Minister Abe, who's continuing to progress Japan in a military direction, as well as politically, it's quite revolutionary because he's fighting against a, a stigma of imagine being the son of a World War II survivor who survived, you know, the atomic bombs being dropped on Japan. You grew up knowing that the empire of Japan would never be the same again. And to go into the military would not necessarily be the most professional career, but it is a career. But the biggest push would be in growing the economy of Japan. So you become the Japanese, you know, CEO. Right. Um, and not finding fault with anybody, just, you know, stating the facts that history was shaped by both the Japanese and us after World War II. And you can still get a sense of that sometimes. You know, there's certain subjects that are very sensitive, even today. And so when you talk about change, the biggest adjustment is working through a decision-making process with the Japan Ground Self-Defense Force and Central Readiness Force that is not the same as ours. So we use military decision-making process, you know, MDMP. We're all very familiar with it, you know, as we continue to, to go through planning cycles. They use the military, well, a, a type of military appreciation process. I don't want to say it's exactly the MAP process, uh, but their decision-making is different than ours. 
and there are limitations to their to their abilities to make drastic changes, especially when it comes to training people with different capabilities. That's the biggest challenge. Yeah. Is that cult? Oh, and you've seen that from being in Japan twice. So you were there as a CA planner, and then you were there as a Marine years earlier. So you've seen right. that culture on hand, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's a it's an amazing culture, and it is the most detailed military culture I've ever worked with. You know, I haven't had a chance to work with various you know, Commonwealth nation partners as well as you know other members of, of different coalitions at different times. The Japanese are meticulous planners, but getting to the point to make the decision is tough. And I I'm going to give you <laughs> a, uh, a Hollywood example. It might seem a little silly, but it's actually it was recommended by the Japanese. That's why I'm going to mention it. Well, I was there in 2016. Japan's known for Godzilla movies, so they had a new one come out called Shin Gojira, means New Godzilla. And the Simic team leader, Lieutenant Colonel Kawasaki, told me I should watch it because it would show me how Japanese military plan. And when I watched it, it was extremely obvious what she meant. Even as Tokyo was being destroyed, it took a while to get to a decision. You know, their decision-making process was, was very detailed and had to be absolutely sure. And, and that's no, I'm not finding fault in any way. I'm just stating, you know, what they told me and what I observed is once they do decide they're going to do something, it's very hard to make changes. Hmm. You know, they're, they're not receptive to the, uh, adapting on the fly because they have devoted resources. They have devoted personnel. They expect the plan to be the plan. And once it's formulated, it is really hard as a partner to stray from that plan. Yeah. That's quite different from the U S approach, uh, going through the MDMD process and going through having a, as detailed as possible plan, but then make a decision. And you have this cycle where it's pushed down, supposed to be pushed down to the lowest level and empowering junior officers, junior NCOs, especially in civil affairs, to make decisions at the tactical level, just go with it and knowing that you have to adapt. Well, and their, their restrictions on autonomy are, are very different. You know, we for years, people in general, you know, within the Army community have said, hey, we're a little bit more risk averse. But you still had autonomy to make decisions. And they do have some autonomy, but it requires higher level approval. It's very different. You know, when I think about what we put a captain through at the Civil Affairs Qualification course, and we grade based on your ability to complete certain tasks, but we also look at your ability to adapt, you know, and to ultimately improvise your plan and adjust it as necessary based on current changes, you know, that you've observed, you've experienced. It's a little different for them. And when you look at their support and United Nations missions, you see that reflected. You know, South Sudan's a great example. They planned to go there, and they did go there. And ultimately, at some point, they decided to pull out of South Sudan. Well, part of the challenge that they faced was they were now facing things that were not originally anticipated. And when you look at that and you think, okay, how does that work if you're a partner? Well, if you're a partner, you have to understand they have five principles when they take part in, in an overseas mission. One, just to gloss over these fairly quickly, agreement on a ceasefire had to be reached among all the parties of the armed conflict in that area. 
So imagine deploying people to somewhere like Somalia, where you have multiple tribes that aren't going to sit down and necessarily agree to a ceasefire. But you've got a couple of key parties that will. Well, whereas we retain the ability to still deploy within that environment, they do not automatically. You know, their operations have to maintain impartiality, never favoring any side of the armed conflict. And whereas we do share certain things like use of weapons, you know, as a last resort, you know, self-defense, defense of others, they by nature are a self-defense force. So that's probably the biggest adjustment, you know, when you think about it from that standpoint. My greatest concern, though, is the CIMIC ability specifically. I mean, obviously, from a CA standpoint, I was proud to see what they had and it continued to grow, you know, in two years that I was there due to my efforts and theirs and several other people who supported me to include U.S. Army Japan. It was uh, it was a phenomenal opportunity. I just wish that they could continue that. And when I saw CRF headquarters disband, that was my greatest concern. So what what's happened since then? CRF is disbanded. You were there for two years and set up this course. You had all the materials there. Japan has them now. Has anyone built on that first course? Is there additional coursework? And did anyone pick up the momentum from what you started? Well, we did the first course in June of 2016. It took about nine months to prep everything, you know, from around, I would guess, September, October of 2015. After that course, we had a couple of USAID Jayhawk courses that we offered for the Japanese and for the U.S. side, because there were several people within U.S. Army Japan that we also wanted to get qualified. And then we had another, not exactly a course, but more of a SME HADR roundtable that included New Zealand, Japan, and us, and was approximately between 35 and 50 participants total. Uh, so that also incorporated SWIC as well. So we had kind of a repeat in 2017, but not exactly. You know, it was more of a discussion about future capabilities and working together with New Zealand also. Right. Um, I'd had a chance to go to New Zealand between the first course iteration and that opportunity in 2017 to do a, a SME roundtable, so to speak. And the New Zealanders were all for it. You know, at the time they did not have but one CA class or semi class that had been conducted a couple of years prior. And I was able to spend three weeks down there uh, with them and building upon a course for for their forces as they were expanding. So the New Zealanders and the Japanese with us were working together for a future of combined HADR training uh, within the region and incorporating it into various exercises, more so. When I left, Major Ed Park took over my position in the ARETJ. And I believe that he's continued, you know, this effort, but I haven't had a chance to speak to him in in a while. So I know he was working in concert with me. He attended the second event we had, which was in 2017, the HADR SME roundtable. He was present for that because he also knew other parties within the region and he was working from Hawaii. So he was going to come over and support us. Major Shane Vanales was also very supportive. He was part of the ARET over in Hawaii, now Lieutenant Colonel Vanales. 
and I believe he's assigned in Texas. I'm not really sure. But I believe the efforts have been continued, but due to CRS headquarters being disbanded and no longer located on Camp Zama, I, I believe there's there's been a, maybe more challenges. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, just because of availability and if the personnel are now back in various parts of the ground self-defense force, the capability still exists, but I don't think there's a designated CIMIC team. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, even if the locals see value in it, they may not be in the right positions anymore to um, to approve going forward or funding to get people together for the training. Yeah, I think a good follow-up would be, you know, to be able to talk to Major Ed Park. You know, I know he was very passionate about this. He, he also had a lot of experience you know, within the region. And I know that, that his goal when we sat down and talked about this was to continue the effort as best he could. Okay. Major Hughes, what would you say, uh, maybe some tips to some other people listening right now, if they wanted to replicate what you did with the Japanese, how would they start that conversation with the host nation? Well, one of the first things to do is look at the legal parameters. You know, get to understand what their military is allowed to do and not allowed to do. Because when you look at it through our lens, there, there's a lot of different things that, that we're allowed to do. And it would be easy to assume that everyone is given that same opportunity. You know, it, it's much like how you define anything. You know, a, uh, a parachutist is a parachutist in every country. But when you ask what a civil affairs officer does, even within our own branch, you get various answers. So being able to clearly articulate what we do and being able to clearly understand what they can and can't do before you put them in a position where they're forced to either be embarrassed that they're not allowed to do this or that or where they feel like they don't bring as much to the table. So you you, you have to be very careful how you package it. You know, one, one of the things I did was I sat down, I talked to the CIMIC team leader, and I asked, if you were allowed to make any changes to the existing training, what would you do? Now, I knew they didn't really have a training pipeline, but I didn't want to start out with, I know you don't have a training pipeline. You know, so I gave her a chance to articulate to me, hey, we don't currently have one, but what we would like to have is something that enhanced our abilities in this area. And that opened the door for me to say, okay, well, I don't have to pursue teaching all five core tasks. I don't have to pursue building a, a new pine land in Japan uh, where people can infiltrate and you know go through all the things that our, our students go through. What I need to do is focus on what they need. You know, it's it, we always talk about this in CA. You can go into a village. You can you can ask people what they need. You can do an assessment and better understand what they need. But be very careful going in there and just straight up telling them what they need. Right. That's right. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's the same thing there. It may look different because you know it's it's not a shura in Afghanistan. It might be sitting across the table at the local Watami. You know, kind of like a, a steakhouse, you know, a chain there. You know, it's all in how you package it. But the biggest thing is listening to what they're saying and not making too many judgment calls. You know, I took judo almost the whole time I was there because I was interested in it, but also because everybody in the Simic force took judo or kendo, and I couldn't afford kendo. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, judo was cheaper, and it gave me a chance to interact all the time. 
So several nights a week, uh, you know, I was having informal conversations, which were supporting what we were trying to do. That unofficial time that you put in had, <laughs> makes such a difference. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Opportunities like that is what I would encourage people to seek out. You know, the worst thing in the world is to be a person who would be short-sighted to, you know, just look at a list. Like, today I need to find out how many people are on the Civic team and what are their skills. You might not get that today, but you might build a relationship that allows you to come back for two years straight almost on a daily basis and build something that might last, you know, something that's really important for our partner capacity. And that's how I tried to look at it. You know, I'm still in touch with several of the Japanese Simic team members by email from, you know, from time to time. I try not to talk too much about work, but occasionally something will be mentioned like, Hey, there was a disaster exercise and we really enjoyed what we, you know, learned whenever you were here. And I, you know, I don't take credit for that, but I take, pride in the fact that I had an opportunity, just like a lot of people have. So reach out to SWIC, uh, Proponency, ask them if they have finished the exportable course. Don't do it on your own, even though good initiative is a good thing. It's better to have some support, and I had some support from there. Uh, although a lot of the groundwork, you know, I needed to do myself, but I was the one present, you know, in Japan, so it just made sense. Major White Hughes, former civil affairs planner for U.S. Army Japan's Army Reserve Engagement Team, the ARET J. Sir, this is a fantastic discussion. I'm sure a lot of listeners learned a lot about your, your experience helping the Central Readiness Force of Japan to set up a course and to train their folks in some of the lessons learned from our perspective in U.S. Army civil affairs. Thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Hey, thank you. It's been a great opportunity, and it's certainly my pleasure. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.